Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. It is The Stacks Book Club Day here, and we are talking about The Giver by Lois Lowry with my mom, Sue Thomas. The Giver is a book aimed at children that examines a utopian society that is based on the idea of sameness. We talk today about collective memory, teaching young people about atrocities in history, and why we think this book works so well for both children and adults. There are a lot of spoilers on today's episode. Make sure that you listen to the end of today's episode to hear the Stacks Book Club pick for June. Just a reminder, everything we discuss on today's show can be found in the link in the show notes. Okay, let's talk with my mom about The Giver by Lois Lowry. All right, everybody, I am back again today with my mom, Sue Thomas. We are discussing The Giver by Lois Lowry. Um, There are going to be a lot of spoilers today. So if you have not read the book yet, I would recommend pausing and coming back after you read it. Or you could just be okay with getting spoiled, and that's fine too. But we're going to talk about the whole book in detail. So that's your warning. Uh, Mom, welcome back. Thank you. I'm so glad to be back. For everybody who's listening, just a quick rundown of the book. The book is called The Giver. It's by Lois Lowry. It won the Newbery Medal, I believe, in 1994. The book came out in 1993. It is the story of Jonas, who is a young boy living in a utopian society. Um, He turns 12 and gets his life assignment, which is to become the receiver of memories. The book then kind of shifts around, and then we'll just get talking about it. But basically, it's it's a utopian, dystopian story. So, Mom, we always start here. What did you think of the book? I like the book very much. Um, It definitely makes you think about the meaning of life and what makes life valuable. So for me, I had read this book when I was a kid, I think in fifth grade, and I remember really loving it, but I didn't really remember the book at all, like the contents of the book. And so rereading it was kind of a fun experience for me because I felt like, I know I like this. I can't wait to figure out why I like this so much. And um, I think it lived up to my memory. I, I really thought that the book, though it's for middle grade kids, so it's for, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh graders, I felt like it also was really good at connecting with the adult audience as well. How did you feel about reading the book as an adult? I actually didn't feel like it was only um, 
directed at a young audience. I actually felt like it was really an adult book as well. I I I felt I definitely felt like this was a kid's book. Like I didn't feel like this was an adult book for sure because there were parts of the book where I felt like she's doing vocabulary words or like, oh, this is a word that would be new to a fifth grader. And a lot of that happened kind of early in the book. Um, and I felt like, you know, the whole part with like the stirrings, right, which were I, my assumption is that that was a wet dream. If it had been for adults, like I think they would have gone into that. There would have been a whole thing about, you know, sex and desire and all this. So it definitely felt like this book is for children. I think that it's well done and it, it's kind of like a Disney movie that it works on multiple levels, right? Like a Pixar movie. There's this whole storyline that works for kids. And then as an adult watching it, you're like, oh, my God, this movie's about grief and moving on without a parent and all this stuff. But as a kid, you're like, this movie is about the Little Mermaid and meeting the prince. So I felt like it definitely worked on both levels, but it certainly felt aimed at young people for sure for me, Um, which is not to say that I didn't get a lot out of it. Like, I definitely appreciated the book as an adult, but I was very aware that it was aimed at children. Well, I definitely agree with you that a lot of her vocabulary that she used um, was written to a younger audience. But the emotional um, uh, engagement really worked for me now in my life. Um, And I feel like, well, that's why she's such an amazing author. Because she got the point across. And exactly just like Disney, it it hits you on a lot of different levels. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was really funny, speaking of vocabulary words, is that I remember – this is such a small, weird memory. But when I was reading the rereading the book, I'm reading it, reading it, reading it. And one of the things that stuck out that I remembered as from as a kid, as a vocabulary word that I remember an adult explaining to me – was the word annex because that's where the giver is. He's in the annex. And I, uh, I that word, for whatever reason, like stuck in my mind, the annex. Um, and I, I that must have been, this must have been where I learned what an annex was. Exactly. Which I honestly still don't know what it is, but like <laughs> that is, that's the first time I ever heard that word. Um, so that was kind of a funny moment for me being like, oh my God, this is the annex book. I think an annex here would mean an extra structure, a separate building. Um, but I, oh, I was thinking of it more as like a separate room, kind of like a sunroom. It could be. It could be. An annex could be. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I'd envisioned it in my mind. You know what came to my mind at, from you reading it as a child is I remember you as sitting in the bathtub. And I don't know if it was this book or Number of the Stars, but me sitting in the bathtub with, I mean, in the bathroom with you, and I was reading it. And for some reason, I feel like when the discussion came to colors, which I I won't go too far into it now because I'm sure at some point we're talking about it. But when the discussion came to colors, I remember you re- really having um, a lot of questions about red. About red? About the color red, yes. Like what kind of question? And how it impacted you. Well, in the book, when he first has the vision of the apple, the color Mm -hmm. red and the app with the apple, I remember you going, well, how could he not already know that? And, you know, sort of being totally mystified by the fact that color was a brand new um, experience. Hmm. 
Well, I've never really been good at empathy, so that's probably why. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. And what did you tell me? That I don't remember. (laughs) But uh, I don't remember my exact words, but I just remember the experience of reading to you while you were in the bathtub. Huh. Okay. Well, I mean, I think... I think we can just get into the to the meat of the book. So um, one of the things for me with this book is that I really liked the overarching kind of themes of this book and the ideas, and I liked the general story. But I found that there were some inconsistencies in the world that she created, and it kind of was confusing to me a little bit. And I don't know, did any of those, did any, does that, like, does me saying that to you bring up anything for you? Are there any things that you can think of that you were like, that wasn't quite right? No, I haven't really thought about the book that way. Okay. So one of the things for me that I couldn't quite get to jive in my mind with what she was saying was, you know, when we get to the when we get to meet the giver, we find out, you know, that they can't experience pain and they don't experience fear and all this stuff. But then I was thinking about the section with Asher when he when they're talking about how the teachers used to like hit them with a stick. They used to give them a smack. Yeah. Do you remember that part? Yes. But if that's what they're using for discipline, it's giving them a smack, wouldn't he then feel the pain of that smack? Otherwise, why would it be discipline? Like, how would that be disciplinary? Well, I don't think they didn't feel any uh, pain at all. I mean, that would just be a smack. I think what the giver was trying to communicate to Jonas is more like real pain, like cold, like uh, frostbite, like... Right, but... Right. But I feel like pain is like on a spectrum, right? Like we're saying like cold, not like chilly, but cold, like freezing. Right. Right. And so what I'm saying is that that is that pain is on a spectrum. So if you can feel pain for a smack, why can't you feel pain for a hit? Like what's to what's to differentiate his pain tolerance versus mine? You know? Yes. I do. Like what might be a smack to him could be really painful to someone who has sensitive skin or something, you know, well, maybe, like I just maybe yeah. the smack actually wasn't about the pain, but maybe it was about the humiliation or the embarrassment because they were so um, supposed to be uh, in line. Nobody deviates. Everything is the same. Total sameness. So maybe his his. um actual impact had less to do with the actual smack and more about the humiliation. I was hoping you would say that because I thought about that too. (laughs) And I thought, I also thought that that was not, that didn't quite fit with what she's saying because humiliation is like a feeling, right? It's something that you feel, you feel, I guess, embarrassed. You feel sad for yourself. Like it's like some more like heavier feelings and if you remember when they're talking about love and, and Jonas brings it to his mom, she's like, that's not a thing. Like, that's right. like just a silly word. And so I'm curious. I was curious about that because I felt like humiliation. I, it seemed like in this world, they didn't actually feel things. They only had descriptive words for what something was. So you couldn't feel love. You couldn't feel like anger. You could feel like irritated or you could feel um, proud of someone, but you couldn't actually, you could be proud or you could be irritated, but you couldn't feel those things. And so that was my other thinking why that doesn't quite make sense with the smack because humiliation is something that you feel like it's something that is something as opposed to something that you um, are able to perform. Right. 
Exactly. Yeah. So no. I don't know. I just there were like these little those like little tiny things like that that kind of got in my way of fully sinking into the world because it's hard to show discipline or to enforce rules without some sense of pain or fear or or emotional connection, at least in the world that the way that I understand right, it. Right, right. And to be worried about disappointment and to not live up to someone's uh, expectations. I agree with you. Yeah. So like, so that was one of the things that stuck out into my mind, particular, like particularly as um, a miss for the book, that there were parts of it that I think like didn't quite sit with the rest of the book. That being said, I want to talk about this idea of Jonas becoming the receiver of memories, because I think that it's really messed up. Well, it's a horrible burden that was given to him, that's for sure, and and without much success. Sure. I just think like this idea of one, one child, one 12-year-old taking on the entire world is it just that hit me really hard. I was like, kind of had to take a breath. I was like devastated by this idea. I think especially right now with what's all that's going on in our world and all of, all of the things, you know, that I can imagine because, because this book isn't set at a specific time. I just imagined it as a parallel world to a parallel community to right now. So it's not just, you know, the taking on of war and death and cold and extreme hot and hunger and all those things, but it's also taking on like all of technology and social media and people who are evil and hateful and like the fact that all of those things that we put out into the world on the internet or on television also would be on the back of this 12-year-old kid. Right. And you know, the uh, get the receiver 10 years earlier um, could only bear it for five weeks. I mean, she um, and, and Jonas experienced it for a year. So it, it was too much to, to bear. And certainly the um, the giver's well aware of that. Right. I, I mean, I also was kind of shocked that the giver hadn't come up with a better plan of like how to get out of this, that it took Jonas to do that. I was like, really? You've been, you have all the memories of the entire world, you know, basically everything and you couldn't come up with a plan. But don't you think they work together for the plan? I mean, Jonas actually executes a little different plan, but the giver and Jonas work together on the plan. Right, right. But what I'm saying is that the whole time the giver was the giver up until he met Jonas, he never could have come up with a plan of how to get out of this. Yeah, right. Like, it's just, it's like, come on, giver. Like, because, because I feel like the reason that Jonas wanted to get out of it was because he realized like that there was both good and bad and that it was too much for him and that, you know, there's got to be a better way. And I just felt like the giver was like, yeah, I, I kind of thought that, but I, there's not a better way. Right. And I'm like, exactly. What do you mean? You've been in this job since you were 12 and you're an old man and you have never figured out a better plan. Like, come on, giver. And that was all kind of relative too. you don't really know how old the giver is because his life has been so um, burdensome and difficult that, I mean, if you look at the 
picture on the cover, he looks like a very, very old man. But there's a couple times there where his age is, it's hard to tell. Yeah. um, We should, well, we're going to go out of order a little bit. I always talk about the cover, but let's talk about the giver on the cover because I, did you, you, I think you have the same edition of the book as me. It's like a, it's a more, it's got like a kind of tan cover with the crackly lines and then the giver is in red and Lois Lowry is in gold. Is that the version you have? I didn't think that was Lois Lowry. I thought that was Jonas. No, no, no. The writing. The writing. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought you meant her picture. Excuse me. Yes, that is it. That's the... No, that, the picture that is, is the giver. That The picture is the giver and at the bottom is Jonas. I don't think I have a picture of Jonas online. Oh, okay. Well, mine is. It's the 25th um, anniversary edition. Anyways, the point is, I want to talk about the picture of the giver, because in my edition of the book, um, it includes her Newbery Medal acceptance speech at the end. Yes. And she talks about who the giver, who the image of the giver is. Did you read that? I did. And it, um, it was very interesting because it was a friend of hers, or an acquaintance of hers, um, an artist who she uh, mentioned could see color and how much more color he could see from his his very um, professional eye. And it made me think about how true that really is. Like, if you watch a basketball game and you think you understand basketball, but then you watch it with a basketball player, all of a sudden there's all these different layers. Or if you listen to music, but then you listen with someone who's a pianist, um, you get a whole different perspective about what the piano's doing in the middle of the concerto or whatever. I love the fact that what she tried to do with color is she tried to imagine how much um, more depth there was to Carl Nelson's knowledge of color. And she's even mentioned that she still has one of his um, pictures on her wall. Right. Yeah. But you left out the most important part about the guy. Do you remember? That he went blind in his late years. That he went blind. Yes. And how difficult that would be to not be able to see color through those eyes, through any eyes, but certainly through his eyes. Right. And so that's who that giver character on the cover is. I thought that was pretty cool. So... I opened up because so basically when I told everybody in the world that we were doing this book, (laughs) a lot of people responded with how much they loved the book and how um, important the book had been to them. And so I opened it up for people to kind of send in questions or comments. And one of the things that um, Pete sent to us that I thought was so brilliant and I had not even thought about it and you kind of brought it up. He said that the color thing, the not being able to see the color is perfect for the novel form because if it had been a movie or a TV show or a play, the audience would have been in on it from the beginning. Right, exactly. But because it's a novel, yeah. she's able to kind of like pull it out and trick, not trick us, but, you know, not, we can't, we, the reader, can't see everything either right. as we're going through. Like we can't rely on our assumptions. Right. And I thought that was just such a brilliant point because I hadn't really thought about how the novel itself the form of the novel functions well she did make this into a movie have you seen it no but someone else um 
Ruth Ann brought up, she, I haven't seen the movie, so I can't speak to this, but Ruth Ann was saying, she had men- messaged and said, why is the movie in color? And I thought that was a great point also. Oh, so I don't know how they do yeah. it in the movie. Yeah. I don't, I haven't seen it. It's yeah. also a star-studded cast. My God. Yeah, it sounded like it's it. Meryl Streep, T- Taylor Swift, Jeff Daniels. I was like, whoa. I think it's something I might have to watch tonight on Netflix. It's not on Netflix. Oh, it's not. No, oh, it's somewhere it. else. But also I've heard it's terrible. So I was thinking I wasn't going to watch it. <laughs> well, sometimes I don't like to watch the movies after I read the books. In fact, most of the time. Yeah, it just depends for me. But I've heard I've heard this one is bad and it's not on Netflix. And I kind of felt like, I don't know if I want to read this or watch yeah, this. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, if it was all done in black and whites, it would become very obvious the minute... The scene opens and you don't really know that they don't see color until, you know, as as it's building until Jonas actually has this, you know, interaction with the apple and then, um, you know, can't quite figure out what just happened to him is the first inkling that that color is not part of their society. Right. I feel like the black and white, if the movie had been in black and white, it would have it could have worked if the movie was made in the thirties or something, you know, like where the technology is there to do color, but not really. And so a lot of movies are still in black and white and then it becomes in color. Like that would work. But now the assumption is that a movie is in color. So anything that's in black and white feels very weird and bizarre. Right. Like I remember like in Schindler's list, right. Don't they have the thing where something comes in in color? Yes. And it's red also, I believe. Yes. And is it an apple? I, it's a hat, maybe. Yeah, I don't oh, that's anyway. No, it, it's kind of a rusty red. Yeah, yeah, it is a hat. But, but that is definitely. I remember when that movie came out when I was a kid. I was like, "Why is this movie in black and white? Like, what's happening?" So I feel like if The Giver was in black and white, that people would respond in that way, and it would be a whole thing. Like, what is this? This is so weird and dumb, right? And like too literal. So maybe that's why they did it in color. But I don't know how they pulled off the then seeing color. Right. In the movie. Yeah. Um, Probably worth a watch. I don't know. You watch it and tell me. I I I don't think it's worth my time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. Uh, Okay. So this is something that is more than just about the book. This is kind of about our, our, our greater world that we're living in. So. I, I mean, I don't know. This is what I extrapolated. This could be totally off base, but this is one of my, you know, half-baked theories that I love to do on this podcast. <laughs> so we have this idea that communal memory of pain is bad in this world, right? Like that everybody shouldn't be able to have these memories of pain and hard times because it is it takes away, I guess, sameness and it's bad for the people. It's bad for morale, essentially, right? right. And that the idea is that if we had that, that we would repeat these things or sorry the idea is that if we don't have this that we won't ever have it because we don't we can't conceive of it essentially right right and i feel like in a, in life now there is obviously a, a huge communal memory of pain and we repeat our as opposed to like learning from our mistakes right we are repeating our pain over and over right and I don't, I don't know. Do you think that if we didn't know what we were capable of, we wouldn't? Or do you think that we would discover new ways to hurt ourselves and others? Well, it, you know, it is really, really timely right now with what's going on with the pandemic, etc. I mean, if you think about it, um, just two months ago, 
we kind of took so much for granted, like walking into the room and hugging somebody was um, kind of routine. And now all of a sudden, the thought of hugging someone becomes, you know, so dramatic or you miss it, you want it so badly because now you can't have it. I feel like it's sort of the same thing with the feeling of pain. Um, You can't really know pleasure without knowing pain. Um, So if you take one away, you take the other one away, the extreme of it all. Um, So you can forget what pain feels like, and then that also means you forget the opposite, what pleasure feels like. Um, And you have to reinvent it. Right. But do you think that that do you think that we would be better off if we couldn't experience those extremes? Like if we lived somewhere in between, like no, not no pain and no pleasure, but a more mild, milder versions. Well, I, I think that's actually an individual trait. Like a lot of people don't really laugh loud and don't really cry hard. They sort of live a middle road um they they're not they're they're you know medium um middle of the road kinds of extreme emotions um so i don't i i feel like some people choose to live their life like that and other people are the the more emotional they cry harder they laugh harder they they feel to greater depths um so I, 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 f- I think we consciously decide how we're going to experience pain and how much we're going to allow it to hurt us and how much we're going to acknowledge it. And we try to draw boundaries around it. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point that, but yeah, that you're saying that people's um, expression of their emotion is is on a spectrum. It's so different. Everybody's so different. And pain, I mean, for instance, you were using the example of pain. I mean, everybody's um, tolerance of pain is on a spectrum. Right. You know, what I I think is a horrible pain, you might get up and say in the morning, oh, I'm I'm feeling a slight pain, but, you know, I can push through this. Right. It's all relative, so... Right. Yeah. I mean, that's all true. I, I, I guess I'm really curious about this idea of communal memory, like the communal memory of pain as opposed to the individual expression. But but like, right. what does it mean for us as a society to have these communal memories of pain or pleasure or or any anything, these communal memories of togetherness or aloneness or whatever it looks like? if we are continuing to repeat these things over and over, right? Like this idea of like learning from your mistakes, turns out we don't really do that. Exactly. No, Ex- we don't. Except for in the sense that maybe we learn how to how to do more and worse, right? Like we might learn from our mistakes in that sense that, you know, I mean, for me, the obvious thing that always comes to mind is, you know, racism, right? Like that this country in, in America was founded on this idea of race, like we created race so that we could 
enslave people and make other people less so that other people can be more, right? And so this communal memory of this founding trauma, right? This founding, I guess, yeah, trauma is continually perpetuated and and made worse, right? Like we're not actually getting any better on anti-black racism in America. And so I'm just, what is the role of the communal memory then if it's not to do better? Yes, I I agree with you. Some lessons are are not learned very easily or um, at all. And racism is certainly one of those. Well, I think um, that the lesson of racism is learned well. I think that there is – I think that it is not – No, I think that there are less people and institutions that want to eradicate it. I don't think it's actually that hard. I just think it's it, – it means that some people who feel entitled will no longer – be entitled, right? Like that's what right. would it that's what it would mean. Right. And so they have no motivation to do anything about the status quo. Right. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last 3 plus years I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops 
and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And, you know, and then the kind of like the next level, I think that um, the author said, Lois Lowry says in the speech she gives or something, some one of the like addendums to the book, that the children are our receivers of memories. Right. And I felt like that was pretty devastating also because I just feel like as adults and, you know, like, you know, we were all children once, so I'm not like, let's not be too precious about children because I think children are really smart and resilient and can be badass. But I think this idea that that all the terrible things that everyone has ever done in this world are passed on to children and without any explanation of what can we do to do a little bit better next time? I think that is the issue because I think it's okay to teach kids about about dark and sad things. But I think that if we're teaching them about these memories or these these events that are dark and sad, we have to be doing better about how do we go forward. Well, children learn through their life experience how to deal with dark and sad things. Children in our society, of course, that's the opposite of what happened in The Giver. But that's how they learn. They learn from the experience of it and how to deal with it. And she, uh, the, what I took from her saying that children are the receivers of memories, I also I took that as a positive because actually your children are also the receivers of your family memory. Like nobody else will know my life story um, to the extent that my children will, because they experienced my life story with me, digested it. I mean, not all of it, but you know, I, I hopefully imparted some of my history to you, who then will share that with your children, and so that's how a li- our family history is established. I actually kind of took her comment as a positive thing that are so our interesting. Ch- our children are the receivers of our family histories and our memories, and that's how we pass them down. And it's, that's the difference between the utopia that Jonas lived in. That's so interesting because I think that every so far, like this whole conversation, I feel like you have been talking much more about the individual and I've been talking much more about the group. I think that's true, yes. And I think that's really interesting because for me, this whole book was like an allegory about the group, right? I mean, not technically not. I mean, it probably is an allegory about something, but not that. And for me, everything was about the group and the greater group and what does this mean for the greater good of society and the people. And I was way less focused on like the individual experience. Yeah, and I totally took it as the individual experience. That's interesting. I wouldn't have even thought about it more as the group. Yeah, I just, I mean, I don't know. I feel like because I, maybe because this book is taught in schools, I'm just really curious. I, I would love to know how teachers teach this book because in, if I was a teacher, which obviously I'm not, um, but if I was one, I think that, or if I were one, if I were one, um, I think <laughs> you'd that, have to take English again. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Um, shout out to the teachers who have good grammar. I think that I would be talking a lot more about about the group and the collective and the greater the greater sense because that is, I think, what resonates with me on this book. Like I'm like when she says the children are the receivers of our memories. Back to my earlier point about like slavery. 
or or the Holocaust. Like I'm thinking of like really dark, horrible times, right? That like children have not experienced. So not the things that you can experience, right? Like the death of a parent right. or the right. loss of um, a sibling or something, you know, things that are devastating on a personal level, but things that are devastating on a communal level. Right. I was thinking a lot about those things and how we pass down those things either, you know, in schools or from our parents or however we learn about it. And that there's so little done in America, I can say, because I know that in other countries they handle these things differently. So I can only speak for America. But in America, we don't really talk about like it's, it'll be like this is slavery and this is what happens and it was bad, but there's no conversation about like and this is what it, the trickle down effect, right? Or right, like and this, yeah, like and in Germany, I know like with the Holocaust, they t- they teach the Holocaust and how messed up it was and how you know we're never going to repeat this again and they have this whole philosophy around you know sharing these communal memories with future generations and how we're going to make sure that doesn't happen again right and like i know yes. that in south africa they have something similar with apartheid and of course that doesn't mean that there aren't still nazis in germany or that there aren't still racists in south africa but there is a communal sense of educating around these painful events that I feel like is super lacking in America. And so when Lois Lowry says the children are the receivers of our memories as an American, I'm filtering it through my own lens and I'm thinking we've really fucked up for our kids because I don't remember being taught a lot of this stuff. And like, I definitely remember being taught about slavery well before school. Like, I remember dad and you, and same with the Holocaust. Like, I remember knowing, I don't ever remember learning that information, which means I must have known about it from an early age. Right. But, like, how are we, how are we teaching our kids to reckon with this stuff, I guess, is what, is what that idea that children are the receivers of our memories brought up to me. Right. And how to change it. Well, I'll tell you, when I, Finally went to Germany, which I had no intention of ever going to Germany because of the Holocaust and because of all of the... um, Well, and for people who don't know, you're Jewish. And I'm Jewish, yes. And so I never wanted to spend money in Germany. I never wanted to support it. But when I finally did travel there just a couple years ago, I think that is what I learned um, and why travel is so important because being in Germany and seeing how often and how much uh, a part of their history um, the Holocaust became, it becomes, it, it is something that they teach to make sure it never happens again. And when we look at what happened in this country with racism, we are not teaching that. We are not making sure that we don't ever make the same mistakes again, that we make, I mean, as a matter of fact, daily almost with between, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, all of the uh, inequities. And right now with the pandemic being, you know, totally a disease of zip codes and um, people of color are 50% of those dying, um, we're not learning that message at all. We're not even trying. We even bring up reparations and nobody wants to talk about it. I mean, um, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we are not teaching, we're teaching our children just the bare bones minimum of the history without a, a way to alter the history. 
Right. And I think to the point about Germany as the example we'll just continue using, I think that that's because in Germany, the lesson that they're trying to teach is that we messed up and we can do better and that this was a bad thing. And I think that in America, the lesson that we're trying to teach is the one of white supremacy. Exactly. And so I think that like we're doing a great job of sending specific messages to children about these collective memories. It's just that the message that we're sending, I just think is not the right one. (laughs) Right. But like there is a clear message being sent to children from a very young age. um, And it is deeply rooted in, you know, patriarchy and white supremacy in this country. And almost everything is filtered through that lens. All you have to do is turn on the news and hear what good people these people are. Oh, these are good people, but black athletes taking a knee at a football game are sons of bitches. Right, right, right. I mean, yeah, I think, I think that that's pretty. I think that that's pretty um, an obvious uh, playing out of a lot of what has gone on in the history. But um, I, I, this is something I've always wanted to know because I, like I was just saying, I can't remember. Do you remember as a parent when you taught us about the Holocaust and about um, slavery as black Jewish children? I'm, I'm not sure that there was any one moment when you were taught. I just think in your life, you always heard us express our political um, leanings. And so I I feel like the way you teach children is that they just experience it. So, But I didn't actually experience those things. No, experience us discussing them. Um, I, I don't think you sit down and say, you know, this is what happened and this is good and this is bad, but how um, your parents react to the news. Um, You know, you just, you just become a part of the conversation. Right. But you and dad weren't like talking about the Holocaust all the time. No, we were probably never talking about the quote unquote, the Holocaust, but we were talking about the injustice. Right. But how did I learn about the actual Holocaust? Like, like, do you remember I guess I guess what I'm getting at is because Jonas is 12, right, in this book, and I felt right. that it was particularly devastating to have a 12-year-old take on all of this stuff, it made me think about when did I start to learn about these things? And I know that for some kids who aren't necessarily black or Jewish, slavery mm-hmm. and the Holocaust might not come up a do lot. You re- do you remember going to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C.? I do remember DC? going to the Holocaust Museum, and I remember that I already knew about the Holocaust by the time I went to the Holocaust Museum, and I was probably eight or nine when we went the first time, right? Y- yes, you were very young. And at, do you remember me um, having a point at which I say, you and I need to leave? Yeah, you made us out. leave because you thought it was too much for me. It was way too much. It was too much for me. I think that's the key. I think it was too much for you. I don't think it was too much for me. Yeah, because I also don't think I understood a lot of what was going on. And there was also like a kind of like a children's path that skipped some of the scarier rooms. Right. Do you remember that part? Yeah, the Disneyland version of it. It wasn't really Disneyland. It was still very much Holocaust. I just think it didn't have like some of the rooms that had like pictures of like the dead bodies and stuff. Like I think some of that stuff. But I definitely remember the room with all the shoes. Like I still went through a good portion of the museum. And then I remember you made us leave. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I got to go back again. 
You know, what you just said really does resonate. Um, I thought I left because I thought it was too much for you, but you very well might be right that I left because it was just too much for me. That's yeah. interesting. I had never, I would never say I left because it was too much for me. I would always say it was because I had the kids with me. But Brady didn't leave with us. It was just no. you and I that left. Yeah. Yeah. And Brady would have been like 12 or 13. Yeah. I, I feel like he would, I felt like he was a little older and could take more of it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe also, I, I don't, I'm, I have had stories from, from, uh, we'll call him Mr. Stacks. Well, I've had stories from Mr. <laughs> Stacks colleagues that, um, about the first time that their children were called the N word. And mm-hmm. that also is a kind of thing that I've been trying to think about myself of like, when do I remember hearing about that word? And when did I learn about that word? And not in the colloquial way that I think is totally fine for black people to use, but in the way that is used as a, you know, a racial yeah. slur. Right. And like with slavery. Right. And I just, I think that, I, and I think you're partially right, in, or I think that you're definitely right that like it's something that you learn about like through experience. So if, if this is part of your family's history, Right. So like if you are from a Japanese family, it might be Japanese internment. But for me, I can only speak to my experience. It's the Holocaust and it's slavery. Um, I guess because it's part of our, you know, family history, not that our family was in the Holocaust, but just like the Jewish family history, right? Collective Judaism. Um, Maybe it's something that was like always there, but I don't remember learning about it. I don't remember finding out that there was this thing called slavery or this thing called the Holocaust. And I just am so curious because I think that there are lots of people that they do remember, right? Like you read that book, Educated, or no, did I tell you not to? Yeah, you tell me not to. Well, there's a part where she learns about the Holocaust and I'm like, whoa, and she's in college. So it's like, this is freaking crazy. But... For I think for a lot of people, they learn about the Holocaust at a certain point. Like it might be in school or, right. you know, like they might watch a movie and there's a swastika. And, and you know, maybe part of the way that I learned about it was I definitely remember there being a swastika in Sound of Music. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, one thing you just said, I'm going to kind of comment on. Um, I remember. So I think race and religion and, you know, also being um mixed children, your dad and I used to always say, you know, if you uh, live in a glass house, you can't throw stones. And you remember us saying that because, I mean, you know, we have a little bit of everything. And sure. um, I remember one time saying something to Brady, to your brother, about race. And he he was a young kid at the time. And Brady said back to me, Mom, race is the smallest thing that impacts me because I have always been a mixed kid. I've always been, uh, you know, part Jewish. I have always been all of these things. And so I don't think about it like a white kid who all of a sudden realizes that his friend is a different color. To me, it's always been something that's just my life. And it, it, it's not a big revelation. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I think that 
you know, you come to the world with your own experience. Um, exactly. But something like race is slightly different than something like an event, right? Like, like an atrocity, because I yes. feel like that yes. is like the Holocaust is a confined event rooted in anti-Semitism, right? right. But, but right, you still, ha- and, and, and back to the giver, you still have to keep your family's memories. <laughs> I sure. mean, that's the point. You have to keep the history, uh, the family's history. Right. And, the communal you know, memory. Exactly. Exactly. Right. No, totally. Um, I know we kind of went on a little bit of a, of a tangent, but <laughs> that's what a podcast is, in my opinion. I, this is another, this is another thing in the things that um, didn't quite m- work for me in the book because it wasn't. It qu- didn't quite fit in the world that Lois Lowry created. And one of the things was that there is hierarchy in this utopia, even though it quote it pretends to be all about sameness. Did you catch right. that? Yes, yes. The birth mothers were. What do they call them? Um, the the birth mothers the were. Bir- at, yeah, and then yeah, also like they there's had the laborers. Children, they were, yeah. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And there were so people he, who like had like night jobs, and so and and, and uh, Jonas's father, you know, as a nurturer was quote unquote the head nurturer. He was sort of, you know, more respected in the nursery. Right. Um, yeah. No, there was definitely and Jonas's mother. Although it was not clear exactly what her job was, she was either some sort of lawyer, judge, sat in, you know, enforced law. Yeah, um, it was. It wasn't quite clear, but she had a big job too. Right, right, and like obviously, and once Jonas, once Jonas was made the receiver, you know, the way people looked at him changed immediately. Sure, right, and so I mean that. I mean. That makes sense for the structure of the book, but it doesn't really make sense for the structure of the world, right? Like exactly. it makes the book make sense a thousand percent. Yes. And I don't think you yes. could do it without it. But if yes. this is really a utopia that it, that is on sameness, everyone's job would be equally important and respected equally, even though some of the jobs are like the jobs are different because they need people right. to do different things. A farmer would be no less respected than a judge would be no less respected than the giver would be no less respected right. than a right. nurturer. And so I don't know, just there was like little there were little things like that throughout the book that stuck out in my mind that like kind of irritated me as an adult. But I think as a kid, I would have probably not even really paid attention to it. And I also think as an adult three years ago, before I started reading books to talk about them, I think I probably wouldn't have noticed it either, if I'm being fully honest. Like this podcast has changed the way that I read a thousand percent. Okay, now I have a question for you. Yeah, go. So the turning point in the book to me is, of course, when Jonas's father has to make a decision about which identical twin to, um, quote unquote, release, get release or get rid of. And I had no idea um, that uh, that would be uh, something that would be actually resonate with you 25 years later, or I don't know, I can't quite remember what age you were when you read this, but 20 years later, how did you feel about that being now the mother of identical twins? Did, was there anything that said to you, oh my God, I, who would have known that I would be seeing this through such different eyes? You know, it didn't really do much for me, honestly. Okay. 
I thought it. I I I know what you're getting at, but yeah. it really I. I don't know. I I would have felt I would have felt sad about it. I think as a kid, and I would have felt sad about it six years ago as someone who didn't have any children. Like I think that it's I I, I don't know. I didn't feel I wasn't like oh my children, my identical twins. Who would I kill? Because obviously I wouldn't want to kill either of them. But I wasn't wouldn't be the one to be asked to do it anyways. Right. It wasn't the I just kids in the parent. middle of reading that had this vision of your little babies in the NICU when they were born and who could possibly make a decision like that. It was very much the turning point for me in the book as well. Yeah, I definitely think it's the turning point in the book for sure, a thousand percent. And I think that it's really sad. But I mean, I also did it. What did you think happened uh, for release before they told us what it was? Well, they say, you know, they send them to um, elsewhere. Um, so you think they're going to go to some other but did utopian you think society? You thought that? Well, I thought it in the beginning. Of course, as I got into the book, I didn't think that. But I so thought, I you know, pretty much maybe because I kind of remembered, but I pretty much knew that those people were getting killed. See, I, I, that took me a while. It okay. took me a while to know that. Okay. Actually, uh, I think when it really dawned on me what was going on was when the giver was talking about Rosemary mm. when she leaves after the five weeks. Right. Um, and then it just dawned on me and it became very clear to me. Right. But when Jonas is watching his father um, with the twins, I, I found it really horrific. Yeah. But I, I feel like I'm seeing it through the eyes of now being, you know, the grandmother of identical twins. And I just think it's so ironic that, you know, 20 years later we'll be having this conversation. Um, and here you, you know, here you are the mother of twins. Yeah, it's I think it'll be harder to have this conversation when we read this book with the boys than it is now. Like, I wasn't deeply affected by it as the mother of twins any more than I think that I would have been. But I think that when I when they read this book and I have to talk to them about it, it'll probably be harder. Right, right. Well, I just feel like I felt it so much more in my heart, mm-hmm. having just experienced four months ago, these little perfect little babies being born. And how would you? I mean, and one of them did just weigh like four ounces less than the other one. I one mean, ounce. They were one ounce apart. It, was it one ounce? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, how would you do that? And, you know, it just, it became very real to me. Yeah. Okay, before we go, because we're kind of running out of time, we have to talk about the ending. No, it's okay. We always run out of time. Uh, We have to talk about the ending. (laughs) Okay. So the ending is super ambiguous. So I just want to know what you think happens at the end of the book. Well, so I've changed my mind. When I read the book at the end, I decided that I, I kind of felt like it was the end for them. Okay. And I thought he was going into some sort of, you know, horrible, um, physical, you know, meltdown. And he was, they were just going to be quote unquote dead, you know, cause they were hungry and they were freezing and they were this and that. And then, so as I was reading it, that was my vision. But as I started to think about him hearing the music and seeing the lights that maybe they actually did get to the next Um, community to the next society. So my original thought was that they pass. And then I kind of had hope that maybe they lived on. So I had both thoughts. And to be honest with you, I don't know which one's right. (laughs) Well, so I, I mean, 
So there's one answer that I guess is the obvious and boring answer, which is that they live because there's sequels to this book and Jonas and Gabriel are in it. But I'm going to put that to the side because I think that that's boring. Um, I think it's like it's just not fun for a discussion. Like, sure, I guess they live, turns out. Um, I feel like I thought that they died 150 percent. I was like, I thought so. And like maybe I had seen that some people thought that maybe the lights and the music was them going to heaven. Yes. I guess. I don't know. Yes. Sure. That would work. Or the afterlife or whatever Jonas and Gabriel would believe in. And then I guess a lot of people thought that they like, like you said, like sled into like a new place with things with music and lights and stuff. I thought that they died for sure. Yeah. That's how I felt too. When I read it, I thought for sure they they died. And then I went back and reread about the last three pages because I wasn't quite sure if it was obvious that they died. And then when I read it the second time, I had, yeah, it was much more ambiguous to me. And then, of course, reading that there are sequels to this book really helped. And I'm really glad baby Gabe did not die because I was feeling so sad about that. I was into the bleak ending. I liked it. I thought it was cool because I feel like I, I think um, I can't exactly remember my state of mind around this book as a child. Like, I definitely can't pretend that I do. But I would like to think now as an adult that the reason that I like this book so much is because it had this like kind of bleak, ambiguous ending right. and that the book was really serious and talked about real things. And so for me, I want the ending to be sad because I kind of want the <laughs> ending to be like, yeah, there are authors that treat kids with respect and and engage them on things that aren't just happy endings yeah you know yeah like i like that i think that that's really cool um and that also you know all of this could speak to the reason why i like to read books about mass murder and the holocaust and slavery yeah. and why i'm fascinated by these ki- kinds of things right and why i don't love a romance novel but you know so this you know this i think what i'm getting at is the thing that's really great about this book is that you can bring a lot of you to it and it still works yes exactly it'll be very i i do have to watch the movie just to see what kind of ending the movie actually has um that'll be interesting but totally can bring your own experiences to this because i mean as we're having this conversation you and i you know really read it quite differently the whole book yeah i think so yeah i think so i'm curious i I mean i keep saying this i keep bringing this up teachers who teach this book in schools i I, please send me an email um (laughs) the stats with tracy at gmail.com i'm just really curious what you teach when you teach this book and how you teach it and and how that works so you know if you have a little extra time when the school year ends, you're not doing Zoom classes or whatever, <laughs> please shoot me an email. I would really love to know um, how you're teaching it or people who had this book taught to you in school, if you remember how it was taught to you. Um, because I, this was a super formative book for me. Like I remember this book. This is one of the books that I name when I talk about books that I loved as a kid and books that I loved in school. And I don't really remember how it was taught to me, but obviously it was done well because I remember the book and I think about the book as a book that I love. And, and so I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really curious about how people are teaching this book. And if it's changed, if you've been teaching for a long time, if it's changed in the last five years or 10 years or a year, or, you know, how are you teaching it at 20 years ago versus how are you teaching it this year? You know, because I, you know, this, this idea of a utopia is such bullshit. And I'm just curious how you do that. 
like how you engage with the idea that like there is no such thing as a perfect world. Right. right. And we see the crumbling of this world right. so easily in this book. Socialism. Sure. I mean, but I think socialism can work. I think it can work too, but... I don't think this is socialism. No, this is the extreme. This is a uto- you know, utopia. This is an extreme. But a lot of their um, uh, philosophy was based on socialism. I mean, kind of. They have health care. Yes, that's true. And education and everything. I mean, meals are brought to... I mean, everything. People go do... The, right. Do, you work to your ability and you're rewarded to your max. Or what appears to be your maximum, because quite honestly, they actually lived a minimal life. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, before we get out of here, because we didn't really talk about the title at all, and we didn't really talk about the cover. What did you think of the? What do you think of the title, and what do you think of the cover? I liked the cover, especially once I knew um, its meaning to her, Um, and I think the title was perfect. Yeah, I like the title. I think the title's great. I think that the title is really straightforward, but it, I did love the moment of the reveal when he's like, what should I call you? And he's like, call me the giver. Right. And then I also really like the cover. I don't like my edition. I don't like the color, the brown color that it is. I think it's like a really boring, ugly color, but it makes sense. Yeah. I would have preferred a gray personally. I just like, I have more of a gray scale than a brown scale, like a gray more yeah. than a sepia, yeah. but that's just me. Um, <laughs> and then I also, I remember, so the cover that I had as a kid, I remember this was that the original cover, the black cover with kind of like a sunsetty orangey giver in the upper corner, yeah, like kind of like torn out. Wasn't he a little bit more scary? Wasn't no? I think it's the same picture. Oh, it I just is. think it's it's like more like a photograph and less like a drawing. Oh, how it is on our okay. cover? Yeah, because for some um, reason your original um, your original book had to me that the giver was a little bit more ominous. You know, he was like mm. a little more like a scary guy. Yeah, well, it's a picture, so that might be why. As opposed to like this kind of this one is like a picture, but not really. That one's like a black and white photo yeah, or something. Yeah. I like that cover a lot better than this cover, but maybe it's also because that's like my sentimental cover. And I think that, Mom, I know you're going through all of your stuff right now. I think that you're going to find my copy of The Giver in my stuff that we kept. Oh, maybe. I'm. If you do, pull it out. Of so course. I take a picture. Of course I do. Is there anything else that you want to say? No, I just want to say thank you for spending this time with me. I really enjoyed it. Oh, well, you're welcome. And thank you for coming on the podcast. My and pleasure. For people who are listening, our, since this is the last episode for May, our episode or our book club pick for June is a book called Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe. It is a true crime book, but it's like got a really different twist on it. It's about our obsession with true crime and mainly with women. It's super good. Go ahead and get your copy. Savage Appetites. We'll be discussing it the last Wednesday of June. Um, okay, Mom. Yes. Anything else? Nope. All right. Well, thank, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And we will see you guys in the stack. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. And thank you to my mom, Sue Thomas, for being our guest. Be sure to pick up your copy of Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe as part of the Stacks Book Club. We will discuss the book on June 24th. 
Find everything we discussed today in the link in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review this show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 